It's amazing to me that so many years before Christ came, Isaiah told about it. It's just amazing the faith that these prophets had to, to make claims. Our uh, scripture this morning comes from Isaiah, chapter 7, verses 1 through 14. When Ahaz, son of Jotham, the son of Uzziah, was the king of Judah, king Rezin of Aram, and Pekah, son of Remaliah, king of Israel, marched up to fight against Jerusalem, but they could not overpower it. Now the house of David was told, Aram has allied itself with Ephraim, so the hearts of Ahaz and his people were shaken as the trees of the forest are shaken by the wind. Then the Lord said to Isaiah, Go out, you and your son Shir Jeshub, to meet Ahaz at the end of the aqueduct of the upper pool on the road to the washerman's field. Say to him, Be careful, keep calm, and don't be afraid. Do not lose heart because of these two smoldering stubs of firewood, because of the fierce anger of Rezin and Aram and the son of Remalia. Aram, Ephraim, and Remaliah's son have plotted your ruin, saying, Let us invade Judah. Let us tear it apart and divide it among ourselves and make the son of Tabeel king over it. Yet this is what the sovereign Lord says. It will not take place. It will not happen. For the head of Aram is Damascus, and the head of Damascus is only resin. Within 65 years, Ephraim will be too shattered to be a people. The head of Ephraim is Samaria, and the head of Samaria is only Ramalia's son. If you do not stand firm in your faith, you will not stand at all. Again, the Lord spoke to Ahaz. Ask the Lord your God for a sign, whether in the deepest depths or in the highest heights. But Ahaz said, I will not ask. I will not put the Lord to the test. Then Isaiah said, Hear now, you house of David. Is it not enough to try the patience of men? Will you try the patience of my God also? Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin will be with child and will give birth to a son and will call him Emmanuel. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together for our time in the word this morning. <clears throat> Father, we give you thanks that in the midst of this uh, age in which we are so distracted and distractible and in the midst of this season in which we are busy with all of our preparations uh, of, uh, for visits from family to uh, celebrate Christmas, uh, we thank you that we, have, we still have this holy moment in which we can uh, be still and hear your word. And I pray that you would uh, pour out your spirit upon us, that you would fill me with your spirit, that I might preach your word clearly and boldly and accurately, that you would fill us all with your Holy Spirit, that the eyes of our hearts may be open to see wonderful things in your word, that you would give us hearts that are good soil, that the seed might take root, that we might be able to trust in your promise and bear fruit to your glory. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. 
So we are continuing our Advent sermon series through the uh, prophecies of the Messiah as seen in the book of Isaiah. And last week, Pastor Nick showed us from chapter 11 that Jesus is the shoot that came from the stump of Jesse. And he showed us some slides of land made barren from the devastation of World War I so that we would have that image in our minds of desolation, of a desolate stump, apparently dead, where nothing can grow, and then we're ready for that surprise good news that a shoot springs up out of that stump. New life out of death grows up and becomes a kingdom of peace. Now this week we have an analogous surprise breakthrough of good news, but it's not a shoot from a stump, rather it's light coming in a time and a place of thick darkness. But to understand the darkness into which the light of Jesus will shine, I need to orient you to where we are in the book of Isaiah and where we are in history. First, where are we in the book of Isaiah? The first five chapters of Isaiah are like the overture to a symphony, or if you're not into classical music, they're like the movie trailer. They, they introduce us to the highlights uh, to come in the book. And then the next major section of the book is called the Book of Emmanuel, and it contains some of the most well-known prophecies of the coming of Jesus the Messiah. And within this book, there is a somewhat obscure but very important story, and it is the story of King Ahaz. And it's very important because it provides the background for the entire first half of the book of Isaiah, when you get to chapter 38, you get another story about the next king, Hezekiah, and that provides the backdrop for the whole second half of the book of Isaiah, but that's a story for another day. Today, we need to learn about King Ahaz. And King Ahaz was a wicked king, but he was the king of Judah, which was the tribe from which Jesus the Messiah would come. We could go ahead and put the map up there. We'll see, uh, see where we're at. So Judah there at the bottom of the screen, the southern uh, kingdom, uh, Ahaz is the king of Judah. And Jesus is the lion of the tribe of Judah. He's coming from that tribe. So God has unstoppable plans for the kingdom of Judah. But this king Ahaz is still a wicked king. So God punishes him through a military defeat to King Rezin of Syria. See Syria there just north of the northern kingdom of Israel. There was a battle, and Judah and King Ahaz lost. How did Ahaz respond to this? He responded by deciding to worship the gods of Syria. He figures, well, they beat us in battle. I guess their god's bigger than our god, so I'll start worshiping the gods of Syria now. That's how much of a believer Ahaz was. So God punishes him again, by another military defeat, this time to King Pekah of that northern kingdom of Israel. So after this military defeat, how does Ahaz respond? He gets mad and he shuts the doors to the temple of the Lord. He says, that's it, no more worshiping the Lord. If he's not going to help us win these wars, we're done worshiping Yahweh. So now, if Ahaz has already been defeated by Rezin and Pekah, Syria, and Israel individually, you can understand his panic when he hears in Isaiah 7, the passage that Jennifer, the liturgist, just read before the sermon, 
that Rezin and Pekah have now allied together against him, right? I mean, last year, Joe beat me up. Two years ago, Bob beat me up. Now Joe and Bob are coming to beat me up together, right? You can understand why the hearts of the people are shaking like trees in the wind. But God is merciful. So despite Ahaz's wickedness, he sends the prophet Isaiah to give him a sign, to give him a promise. And he tells Isaiah to bring his son with him. His son, who is named Shear Yashuv. Lots of kids in this story with very meaningful names. Shear Yashuv is Hebrew for a remnant shall return. So God is going to save Judah, but only a remnant shall survive. Terrible times are coming, but God will save a remnant out of it. And the sign or the promise that he gives to Ahaz is that another child is going to be born and his name will be Emmanuel. And before that child is old enough to know wrong from right, these two kings from Syria and Israel, these two kings that you're afraid of will be destroyed. Now, you would think that Ahaz would be happy to hear this, right? But he doesn't care. He doesn't believe in the Lord, right? He doesn't care. He's got his own plan. And his plan is to make an unholy alliance with the great superpower of his century, the empire of Assyria. You see it up there in the, uh, in the north east of the map. That's the great superpower of the century, and Ahaz has cut a deal with Assyria, and he's confident that Assyria is going to bail him out, so he's not interested in whatever word from the Lord Isaiah has for him. But as we'll see in the moment, that unholy alliance is going to come back to bite him. But for now, Isaiah goes back home after delivering the message. He goes back home to his wife in chapter 8, verse 3, and she conceives, and they have another son. But he doesn't name him Emmanuel. He names him Maher Shalol Hashbaz, a name that does not make its way into many baby books. But it means quick to the plunder, swift to the spoil. In other words, the victory is coming soon. Before this child that Isaiah has can even say Dada, Syria and Israel are going to be carried off by the king of Assyria. So it actually kind of sounds like Ahaz got away with it. His plan worked. Assyria saved him. But now listen to what the Lord says starting in chapter 8, verse 5. Because this people has refused the waters of Shiloh that flow gently, and that waters of Shiloh, probably the same as the pool of Siloam in the New Testament in John 9, pool right next to the temple. So just like Ahaz has shut down the temple, don't, nobody's worshiping the temple anymore, so he's rejected the waters of Shiloh and instead rejoiced over Rezin, the son of Ramali. He went and started worshiping the gods of Damascus, of Syria, right? Therefore, behold, the Lord is bringing up against them the waters of the river. Tigris and Euphrates up there where Assyria is. The waters of the river, mighty and many, the king of Assyria and all his glory. And it will rise over all its channels and go over all its banks. And it will sweep on into Judah. Hey, wait a minute. Syria was just supposed to, like, take out Syria and Israel, right? But now it's sweeping on into Judah. It will overflow and pass on reaching even up to the neck of Judah. So Assyria 
comes sweeping down out of the north like a mighty river, and it wipes out Syria, and it wipes out Israel, and it almost wipes out Judah. It rises up to their neck. King Ahaz is betrayed by Assyria. His false hope in worldly alliances almost destroyed him. But then God in his mercy spared him at the last minute, and a remnant of Judah survived. So this is the darkness into which the light of the promised Messiah will shine. Judah is almost destroyed. Look at the end of chapter 8, verse 22. They will look to the earth, but behold, distress and darkness, the gloom of anguish, and they will be thrust into thick darkness. But then you turn the page to chapter 9, and it says, Nevertheless, there will be no gloom for her who is in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, but in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them a, la- a light has dawned. And that's the passage, of course, it's quoted in Matthew chapter 4 at the beginning of Jesus' ministry in Galilee. We can take the map back down uh, now. But before we move forward to the good news, the light crashing into the darkness, let me summarize here what we've learned from King Ahaz. So he's in crisis. He's filled with fear because his enemies are descending upon him. And in the midst of his fear, God gives him a promise. God sends the prophet and tells him, do not fear. Stand firm in your faith. But Ahaz does not trust the Lord. And he looks to the world for deliverance and it almost kills him. But nevertheless, God has mercy upon him anyway. Do you see how this is the story of our lives? Scary things are on the horizon. We are an anxious and fearful people. But we have the promises of God. We have the word of God to hold on to. And we are called to trust in the Lord and to wait upon him. But we don't. We look to worldliness to give us security and comfort. And sometimes we get away with it. And sometimes we suffer greatly for it. But thanks be to God, he has mercy upon us anyway. Unto us, us sinners, unto us a child is born. Unto us a son is given. Jesus, Emmanuel, God is with us even in our darkness On Christmas, we remember that a light has dawned and has pierced the darkness, and the darkness will not overcome it. And it is fitting that we celebrate this holiday round about the winter solstice, the darkest day of the year. The promises of Christmas are given to a very sinful people during a very sinful time in Israel's history when the people are sitting in gloom and darkness, which tells us that Christmas is for sinners. Christmas is good news for sinners. In spite of all our gloom, distress, darkness, and sin, nevertheless, 
the promise comes. Nevertheless, Jesus comes. We need to focus on this at Christmas because the sad reality is that for many of us, Christmas comes with a backdrop of gloom and darkness. For some, Christmas is a reminder of separation from loved ones, some of whom are not with us because they've passed on. Others are not with us because they're estranged from the family, and Christmas makes us painfully aware of their absence. Other, other people might say, well, I, I understand that, and I, I cope with that kind of pain, but what's even worse for me is that the, it's my pain is self-inflicted. I'm experiencing the devastating consequences of sin in my life, and I know it. What hope do I have? Well, it's to you that the promise of Christmas comes. The gloom and distress that Israel was in was self-inflicted, and yet they received these great promises. You may not feel ready for Christmas, but it's here. It comes. And the grace of God toward us is just as inevitable, just as unrelenting as the calendar. It's coming. Just humble yourself before it and prepare to receive it. Will you receive the promises of Christmas as good news? Or will you lose hope and turn to still more sinful sources of hope and encouragement like Ahaz turned to Assyria? I think that Christmas has a tinge of disappointment for everybody because there are these tremendous expectations that we place upon it. For it to be this warm, fuzzy time where the family gets together around the fire and the tree and we sip hot cocoa and we reminisce and the kids are all well-behaved and peacefully take their turns opening presents and then they exhibit heartfelt thankfulness toward one another. And it's not that perfect for anyone. In fact, most of our families are considerably more dysfunctional than that. But nevertheless... The promise comes and is good news for you. Maybe you are more likely to have a messy Christmas than a merry Christmas. That's okay. Christmas is not a time for parading our pretended perfection. Christmas is a time when sinners like us receive good news of great joy. It's not a time to exalt our own imaginary intrinsic goodness Christmas is not about our goodwill to men. It's about God's goodwill to men upon whom his favor, his grace rests. And so I encourage you this year to take all your disappointment, all your gloom, all your mourning, all your darkness, even all your sin, and write underneath it all, nevertheless, Jesus comes. Unto us a child is born. King Ahaz was told that the virgin would conceive and bear a son who would be a sign that God was with us. Now, some of you may know that there's controversy over the translation of that word for virgin. The Hebrew word can mean virgin, or it can simply mean young woman. And back in the 50s, I think it was, 1950s, the RSV translated it young woman. That was like it was like the biggest church fight of the 20th century. People lost their minds, right, arguing over whether or not, you know, that verse should mean virgin or young woman. But there is good reason for the ambiguity here as to whether that word means virgin or young woman. And the reason is that there was an interim fulfillment of this promise in Ahaz's lifetime, as well as an ultimate fulfillment 
of this promise in the birth of Jesus. So in Ahaz's lifetime, as we just read in chapter 8, there was a child born in a non-miraculous way, and he was named Maher Shalal Hashbaz. And the promise was that before this boy was grown, those two invading nations, feared by Ahaz, would be destroyed. But certainly, this cannot be the only fulfillment of the promise to Ahaz, for here now in chapter 9, after the birth of Maher Shalal Hashbaz, we are promised that unto us another child will be born. And he too has a fourfold name, like Maher Shalal Hashbaz, but his name is Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And then when the Old Testament was translated into Greek, the Septuagint, a couple hundred years before Jesus' birth, they translated Isaiah 7.14 with a word that must mean virgin, cannot just mean young woman, which tells us that the Jews, before Jesus came, they understood Isaiah 7.14 to be a prophecy of the virgin birth of the Messiah. They understand that Maher Shalom Hashbaz didn't finish that promise, that there was still another child coming to us who was mighty God, wonderful counselor, born of a virgin. Now I want to spend the rest of our time unpacking just one part of his name, and that's the phrase wonderful counselor. His name is wonderful because this baby is God in the flesh. The name wonderful is a divine name. There's another foreshadowing of the birth of Jesus in the birth of Samson in Judges chapter 13. An angel appears to Samson's father Manoah and promises that his wife, who has been unable to conceive echoes of or allusions from uh, Luke chapter 1 and John the Baptist, right? So his wife was unable to conceive, but he gets his promise from the angel that his wife will miraculously give birth to a deliverer of Israel. And Manoah, Samson's father, said to the angel of the Lord, what is your name? So that when your words come true, we may honor you. And the angel of the Lord said to him, why do you ask my name, seeing it is wonderful? So Manoah then offers a sacrifice, and when the flame goes up from the altar toward heaven, the angel of the Lord went up in the flame of the altar to heaven, which is a picture of Jesus. He is the sacrifice, right? He's the one who was sacrificed for us. The angel of the Lord is like an appearance of the pre-incarnate Christ. And Manoah said to his wife, we shall surely die, for we have seen God. So they understood this to be an appearance of God rising up in the flames of the sacrifice. And that's awesome, and someday I want to preach a sermon on Samson, but the point today is that this word wonder is a name associated with divinity. Jesus, as we just sang, is true God of true God, light of light eternal. Lo, he shuns not the virgin's womb. This is the wonder of wonder. See, the thing about most wonders is that they fade. Wonder is a very short-lived emotion. In my study of this, I came across an old proverb that's evidently fallen out of use. I'd never heard it before, but it is said, a wonder grows gray-headed in nine days. The point is, wonder fades. Wonder doesn't last. Go ahead, test the proverb out this year. Count off nine days from Christmas, January 3rd, 
Check on January 3rd to see how much wonder is still left in the eyes of your children and grandchildren about the new toys they got for Christmas. The wonder quickly fades. You've got a basement full of proofs at this point. But the wonder of Christ never fades. Jesus Christ is the only inexhaustible wonder. And you need to know that because your heart was made for wonder. Your heart will never be satisfied unless it can wonder. And unless your heart finds the eternal, inexhaustible wonder of Christ, your life is going to be one disappointing nine-day wonder after another. And I know you're tired of that. Sin and worldliness are around us on every side, saying, Try me, I'm wonderful. This is wonderful. Look over here, it's wonderful. It's always a lie. Christ is the inexhaustible wonder who can captivate and satisfy our hearts forever. There's another thing that a lot of people are looking for besides wonder. A lot of people are looking for counseling, right? And the good news is that his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor. Everybody needs counselors. Everybody needs advisors to make it through life. Only one person has never needed counseling, and that's God. Isaiah 40, 13 says, Who has known the mind of the Lord or instructed him as his counselor? But all the rest of us, we need counsel. But no matter how many counselors you may have, there are only two kinds of counsel. The counsel of Jesus and the counsel of Satan. And we're going to talk about what those are. But let me pause here and say, I'm not trying to say, I'm not trying to say anything about like Christian counseling versus secular counseling. Like one's all bad and one's all good. No, I mean, I've been to secular counselors. I find them very helpful. It's not, uh, you know, everybody needs counseling. The point is that the message, the counsel of Jesus, is different from the counsel of Satan or the counsel of the world. So we're going to look at the difference between those two. Because the world fell because of a counselor. What was Satan's counsel, you remember? You shall not surely die. It's going to be fine. Everything will be okay. And so... Since that's the counsel that caused the word to fall, it is, it is fitting that the world is restored through a counselor, a wonderful counselor. So I did a word study on counsel. It was fascinating. It's clear that both in Isaiah and in the New Testament, the counsel of Jesus and the counsels of men are deliberately contrasted. In the New Testament, the Greek word that translates this Hebrew word for counsel is used eight times in the Gospels. For the evil plots of men against Jesus. And the word is then used once, only once, of Jesus' counsel to us. But I'm saving that for last. First, let's look at this word just in the book of Isaiah to see how he contrasts the counsel of man with the counsel of God. One theme of chapters 40 to 48 of Isaiah is that there's this disputation between God and the makers of idols. God is like calling the makers of idols into court for a hearing. And he's trying to reason with them to get them to see and get us to see the folly of idolatry. So in chapter 45, he says to the idolaters, they have no knowledge, those who carry about their wooden idols and keep on praying to a God that cannot save. Declare and present your case. Let them take counsel together. And we get a picture of what that counsel is in 41.6. Everyone helps his neighbor and says to his brother, Be strong! 
The craftsman strengthens the goldsmith, and he who smooths with the hammer, him who strikes the anvil, saying of the soldering of the idol, it is good, and they strengthen it with nails so that it cannot be moved. Better nail that idol down so it doesn't get knocked over, right? That's how dead they are. He's mocking the makers of idols and how unbelieving, idolatrous men and women encourage one another. It'll be okay. Hang in there. It'll all work out. You won't surely die. Learn to love yourself more. Don't worry. Be happy. Everything's fine. But God says of this shallow, powerless counsel in Isaiah 47, 13, all the counsel you have received has only worn you out. Does that ring true for you? All the counsel you've received has only worn you out. Are you tired of the shallow encouragement of man? God looked down from heaven and saw that all mankind was corrupted with this satanic counsel. For he says in Isaiah 41, 28, When I look, there is no one. Among these, there is no counselor who, when I ask, gives an answer. Behold, they are all delusion. Their works are nothing. Their metal images are empty wind. So since there was no one else who could save them, no one else who was speaking the truth, no one else giving wise counsel, he sent his only begotten son, Jesus, who is described, as we read last week in chapter 11, verse 2, as having the spirit of counsel. So now, finally, what is the counsel of Jesus? Here's the one time that's used of Jesus. Revelation chapter 3, verse 17 and 18. The risen Jesus now appears to John the Revelator and says through him to the church in Laodicea, You say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing. But you do not realize that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. And I counsel you, buy from me gold refined by fire, so that you may be rich. And white garments, so that you may clothe yourself, and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen. And salve to anoint your eyes, so that you may see. This is very different from Satan's counsel, isn't it? That you shall not surely die. No, Jesus confronts us with our need of a Savior. And he wants us to come to him for gold, for the eternal inheritance of heaven and the wonder of seeing his face that will infinitely outshine the gold of this world. He wants us to come to him for white clothes, for the purity of forgiveness and righteousness that comes from trusting his shed blood on the cross that takes away the penalty of your sin. He wants you to come to him for salve for your eyes so that you can see and behold his uniquely satisfying wonder. But first, we've got to acknowledge our need. We must stop listening to the counsel of the world. We must stop telling ourselves that we're rich and don't need a thing. Christmas tells us good news of light that comes into our darkness, of joy that overcomes our gloom, of freedom that liberates us from bondage. But to receive it, we have to acknowledge that life, apart from Christ, is darkness and gloom, and bondage. And that we need to come into the light and draw near to Jesus. So I invite you 
to come out of darkness into the light and to do that with me even now as we go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we do come before you and we acknowledge our need of deliverance, our need of salvation from our sins and from our fears and from all of our idols. We confess that we have turned away from the gentle waters of Shiloh, that we have forsaken you, the spring of living water, and built for ourselves broken cisterns that can hold no water. And we want to turn away from those idols in our hearts and turn towards you. And so we come to you now. We thank you that you have sent your son to be the atoning sacrifice for our sins, and that you did this even while we were yet sinners. You loved us so much to do this. We thank you for that. And in his name we pray that you would forgive us our sins, that you would fill us with your spirit, that you would enable us to rejoice and to trust in this good news and bear fruit to your glory. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen.